If you're willing and able, please stand with me as we prepare to read God's word from the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. By the way, I hope you all are enjoying this as much as I'm enjoying studying this, uh, but just going verse by verse through this gospel. It's been enriching for me, and I pray that it is for you. And we're coming to the end of chapter 3 today, looking at John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. I will read out loud. You could read silently, words on the screen or in your own Bible. I'm reading from the ESV version. Again, the author says this, after Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing, John also was baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let me pray. Father, we will see Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe you have had this experience. I know I have. But when a, a big truck or some vehicle that is very heavy goes over a tiny bridge, a very tiny bridge, it almost seems like the bridge is about to crumble because there's so much stress on the bridge. It's a bridge quake. Something very heavy is pressing on a very small bridge. Friends, when Jesus comes into a person's life, there is a life quake. His weight is on us. There is stress. He is pushing in on us. His lives, his life collides with our lives, plus, plus placing stress on us for the purpose of changing us. We will not be the same. When Jesus comes into our lives, friends, we are unable to relate to him and at the same time retain or hold on to things that we hold dear. If you're like me, he didn't come to be an add-on, like to everything else I'm doing. No, he came to totally destroy my old life and give me a new one. 
We don't give Jesus access to some things in our lives while we hold on to other things. You may be like this. Like you, people come to your house. You clean up the rooms that you want people to go into. Yeah. Yeah, you clean up the rooms that you want people to go into. But we say stuff like, oh, make yourself at home. We don't mean that. We mean make yourself at home where I've cleaned up. That's a bathroom, a living room. You don't have access to my bedroom. But often we treat Jesus this way. The areas we want cleaned up or that we do clean up, you hear Jesus. Don't go into that one. I want to hold on to that. But no, when Jesus comes to our life, he has access to everything. Everything changes when Jesus, his life collides with our lives, our convictions, our ideas, our behaviors, our relationships. Everything changes and everything must be submitted to his lordship. Why? Because he's God. He's God. What we are speaking of here is Christology, the theological term. Christology, it speaks of the person of Christ. And when we look in our text today, this is the major theme of our text. Christ is central. He's central throughout the whole Bible, let me say that. But as we look here, the writer John is highlighting Jesus in a magnificent way. He is the center of everything for the Christian. As a matter of fact, Christianity is Christ. Even the doctrine or right information that we proclaim is important. But what is most important is a person. Because we can elevate semantics and doctrine and fight people over verbiage. Statements. Or I'm, a, I'm, I'm reformed or, or, or I'm X, Y, and Z. It's nothing wrong with being reformed, but we would elevate that and hold on to that and miss Jesus altogether. Right doctrine, right information is good. We need to be able to come to the text, understand the text, share right information, but that right information must point to someone, and his name is Jesus. This is what John the Baptist continues to preach and teach in the text. Jesus is the one that everyone must listen to and believe. We're in a chapter, the end of chapter 3, where now John is going to move off of the scene. We will hear no more about him in this gospel. And he's fine with that. Jesus will be most prominent. Why? Because, again, everything is about him. If you look in verses 22 to 24, we are told that Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside. In other words... They went to your more out the, the rural areas. They were in Jerusalem. He had this conversation with Nicodemus. He was also there with the where he turned, uh, um, excuse me, where he was overturning tables at the Feast of Passover. But now they move out of the inner city to the Judean countryside. But the text also tells us that John and his disciples, if you look at uh, the topography and look at a map, Jesus is more south. John and his disciples are north. And it says that they are at this place called Aenon, near Selene, where there was plenty of water, and they're doing the same thing that Jesus and his disciples are doing. They're baptizing. One of the things you see here is that John's 
ministry and Jesus' ministry overlap. But as we will look in the text, John realizes that my time is up. It's time for me to move off of the scene because who is most prominent? It's the Lord Jesus. This leads me to our main point for this morning. If Jesus is the focus and impacts all of our lives, the person and work of Jesus applies to and shines in every corner of our lives. In other words, there is no aspect of my life that Jesus does not impact. When our focus is on Jesus and no one else, we understand that his life applies to my life when I even feel anxiety. Anybody has that worry? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand, but when anxiety presses in on you, when there is panic, when there are things where you just don't know how it's going to turn out, his life applies. I, I, I want to say this now. Praise God for those who counsel. I believe this. Trust Jesus and take your medication. Trust Jesus. Take your medication. But all of his life applies to my life when I'm feeling anxiety, when I'm feeling worry, when I'm struggling. His life applies to us even in our marriages, in our singleness. Like, again, I hope you see what I'm saying here, that there is no aspect of our lives that Jesus' life does not apply to. His life intersects and applies and impacts even my very work that I do. I'm not telling you to go to work. I'm a Christian, so you pull out your Bible and don't do work. You're going to get fired. Do your work. But you could do it in a way, live in a way, where Jesus is exuded through you. And maybe someone will come to you and say, you know what, I want to get some time with you. It's something interesting about you. Again, his life applies to and shines in every corner of our lives here and now. I don't know if any of you struggle with this, but sometimes I have to remind myself that this is not just an ancient book written of old, of just information getting. But this book is alive and active. It is something that applies to each of us in the here and now. So as I'm waking up daily, he gives me life and I wake up next to my wife and whatever we're going to interact with or have going on that day, his life applies to that. It applies to me as a father of adult children. It applies to me when, I'm, when we're dealing with aging parents and the health, like all of that. And you could say the same thing about whatever his life applies, but I wonder how often we leave him on the outskirts because we only would go to him, Russell will only go to him when things get bad. Let me try to work it out myself. And then I want to use him like a genie to fix everything. Instead of doing that, can we make, can we make him, can I make him the central focus of my life? This is what John, we're going to see in the text, John the Baptist is letting his people no, the disciples, no. He let the disciples know that Jesus is the one that they should know and follow. It's not John. It's Jesus. He points to another. He is supreme and above all. Why? Because he is from heaven. So as we move through these verses, 
Here's where we're going. There's three things that I want us to see. First, Jesus is our focus, no one else. Again, I know I'm being redundant here, but I don't mind because we need to get it. He's the focus, no one else. Secondly, God determines your destiny because he alone is sovereign. We're going to see this in the text. He determines your destiny. Why? Because he is sovereign. And finally, to believe Jesus is to believe God. It's all about Jesus. So first, Jesus is our focus and no one else. The text says in these two verses, now a discussion rose between, arose between some of John's disciples and the Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. This word for discussion, so there was a discussion, it means an argument or a debate. And I read that and I realized like, man, we do that really well in our day to argue, to debate. And so here it says there were this unnamed Jew and John's disciples debating, arguing. What were they arguing about? The text says they argued over purification. In other words, they debated the merits of how a person makes himself clean before God and people. So how do I do it? What is the process by which one would be purified in God's presence and before people? John's disciples and this unnamed Jew, they could have been arguing over the merits of John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism. Because like, you got to think about it. John came baptizing. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it tells you that G John was baptizing. Right? He's doing it, and everybody's going to him. So all these people are flocking to John. Now all of a sudden, Jesus is on the scene, and he's baptizing. And as we'll see in a moment, more people were going to Jesus. Now put yourself in that situation. If you were following John, and you, had, you were a part of the group that had all of the buzz, you had all of the juice, you making it happen, and all of a sudden, your congregation dwindles. Your followers get small. I think all of us be like, so what do we do now? Uh, or looking, let, let, let me find a team to go to that's, that looks like it's winning. Actually, this is the point John is living out. This ain't the right team. But if you were that, those Jews or that, those disciples, you wonder, what's going on here? What does this mean for us? John's disciples did not fully grasp the ministry of John based on how they approached him. Now, they came to him and said, Rabbi. And we think this is a term of endearment, but they really came and these are like, it's almost like a, a scornful, like, Rabbi. So, you're, you're the rabbi, right? So, the dude, the one that you were with around, across the Jordan... He's baptizing, and, he's, and more people are going out to him. So what do, we, 
what, what's going on here? You, you are the scholar. You, you are the guy we are following. See, John used to be popular. Now Jesus is on the scene. And his popularity is growing. And it seems that his disciples, John's disciples, didn't like that. They saw Jesus' work as a problem. They saw his person as a problem. But here's the truth, y'all. Jesus is never the problem. He's always the solution. Again, I don't know about you, but I've had conversations with people where they are angry with Jesus. They are mad with God. Like he is the problem with what's going on. Here's the thing. He is never the problem. He's always the solution, but for us, do, are we willing to submit to him and his way of thinking and his way of doing things? See, John's disciples should have remembered that John said, he continued to say, I am not the Christ. I am not the one that you should follow. He came to witness about, witness to the coming one. But what was John to do? Even John, what was he to do now that the one he witnessed to was on the scene? The disciples of John thought that they should, John should stay in the spotlight and no one replace him. And this made me think of us. Often we think that we're irreplaceable. Our skill sets, our abilities, that they need me. Newsflash, all of us are replaceable. All of us are in whatever it is that we're doing. John's disciples, again, they're human. We're human. John is baptizing. People should be sticking with John. He's seeking to follow the Lord. But Jesus is taking away our thunder. Like them, we often make everything about our gifts, our personalities, the way we do certain things. We want followers in a platform. Man, we live in an age right now where if you get a million streams of something, you are now an influencer. Uh, and even little kids are becoming influencers. We met somebody not long ago. I didn't meet her, but saw her. She got all these followers. She's going on all these TV shows. Like, just an influencer. But what happens when your influence is no more, is, is not influencing anymore? What happens? They're going to get rid of you, replaceable. Someone else will come in, but the one that we can never replace, the one who is irreplaceable, is seated right now at the right hand of the Father. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. John understood that, he understood his role, that he was not the focus. More than that, John came and played the role for which he was created, which leads me to my second point. God determines your destiny because he alone is sovereign. John the writer, the author says in, in, no, John the Baptist says in verse 30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John's disciples had it wrong. They didn't understand John's role, so John gave them another perspective. The perspective now he gives them is a heavenly perspective. This is true for us as well. We need a heavenly perspective perspective. When we don't have a heavenly perspective, we try to figure things out in life from our vantage point, 
our point of view. When we do that, we're making decisions apart from God. It's like, uh, I watch the news, but I don't watch the news. I'm sorry. But they give you a traffic report. Do they still do that on the news? I told you I don't watch it. They give you a traffic report, and it's, it's live. They're able to do that because someone is flying over a particular area or a city. They have a vantage point that the drivers don't have. We drive and we get caught in traffic, and many of us use words that we should not use, but we are mad because we're in the traffic. Okay, I'm the only one. Um, get caught in the traffic, but there's someone who, who's over, driving over or flying over the city who can see all, everything that's going on. Likewise, God's perspective is the perspective that sees the totality of our lives. John the Baptist's disciples, they only saw what they could see in the natural. They needed a heavenly perspective. So when things for us, when they get bad or difficult, we need a heavenly perspective. And when we do, we can understand what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, where he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. John had a heavenly perspective. For he says in verses 27 to 28, a person cannot receive anything unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I love it. John knew who he was, and he knew who he was not. And he was content to play his role. From the beginning, his ministry was about another. As a result, he submitted to the determined will of God, and that is seen in this word, must. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. This is the determined will of God. Now that Jesus is on the scene, he saw and understood that he fulfilled his purpose. Now he gets to it. I love it. He, he, he gives a wedding scenario. He says that he was a friend of the bridegroom. He was not the bridegroom. He, is, he, he says he is the equivalent of what we call the best man. Now, in the ancient culture, this was the role of the best man. He organized the details and presided over a Judean wedding. His role was to ensure that the wedding ceremony proceeded without a hitch. You know, that we, we hire what wedding coordinators. Is that the person where that person is responsible for? In this culture, it would have been the best man to make sure the bride has everything she needs, the bridegroom has everything that he needs, that all of the resources are available for this wedding. This was John's role, and he saw that he fulfilled that role. But how did John help prepare this bride? Because that was a part of his role to help prepare the bride to meet the bridegroom. But how did he do that? He came to earth proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Here is a scene that Luke gives us in Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. Look at it with me. The text says, and the crowds asked him, what shall we do? They are going to John to be baptized. And they are submitting to his baptism of repentance. And as John is preaching, they ask a question, what then shall we do? 
And he answered, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. As these people submitted to John's baptism, John, in essence, says, to prepare to meet your, 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 your bridegroom, stop stealing. Share with people. Treat people well. Yes, you got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind soul, mind, soul, and strength, but you also need to love your neighbor as what? Stop stealing. Stop extorting. Share with people when you have more than enough. This is how John helped prepare the bride, the people of God, to meet their bridegroom. Again, John fulfilled his destiny. He did his role. He says, I'm pleased now. I've done my job, and now he's going off the scene because he knew it was never about him. God is the one who determined his destiny because he was connected to God. Along the California coastline live some of the tallest organisms in the world, redwood trees. These trees could uh, get as tall as 300 to 500 feet. You see pictures of people just doing this, just looking up. They have some as old as 500 to 700 years old. I've understood that some even has even reached 2,000 years old. Like this, this is amazing. But these trees only grow in groves. They only grow in groves and their roots are intertwined. Under the ground, their roots are connected. No intertwining, no growth. No connectedness, no growth. Like John the Baptist, friends, you have a destiny that is unique to you. And as you pursue your destiny, you must never forget that God created you to help you fulfill his purpose for his children. Now, your destiny is yours alone, but it's not about you. And to fulfill that destiny, you need to be connected to someone. You can't fulfill that destiny on your own. I know we ask our kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's a great question. And our kids typically say either they want to be like mom or dad, they want to be a, a, a fireman, a doctor, they want to be all of these things. But what if we go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? I want to fulfill the destiny that you have called me to. Even if it's not in the lights, John the Baptist. Even if I don't get paid gobs of money to do it. But if I'm doing what you call me to, I know the Bible says that there is a reward stored up for me in heaven when I get with you to fulfill that destiny. John fulfilled his, and it was enough for him. And he went off of the scene. Why? Because he knew it was not about him. And Russell is talking to himself right now. He's talking to himself. It's never about me. It's, it's, not a, it's not about us. He uses us, but for a greater purpose. Fulfill that destiny. Finally, to believe Jesus is to believe God. The author says in verse 33, whoever receives this testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
he closes the chapter again, highlighting and focusing our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Christianity is Christ, his person and work. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist or any baptism rite of purification he may represent. He's so much greater. Why? Because Jesus is from above and above all. The one from heaven is infinite and unlimited. The one from earth is finite and limited. John the Baptist is in the category of as one from the earth. John the Baptist is limited. It makes sense that he's going to fall off the scene. He's limited. He's finite. Jesus, God, man, God come from heaven in a man, he's still infinite. He's still unlimited in all of his person and his resources. Jesus is the one who testifies to, as the text says, what he has seen and heard. However, the author informs us that no one receives his testimony. No one receives his testimony. See, John witnessed to Jesus. He witnessed to him. And John, in essence, going back to the early verses, he informs his disciples that, no, he's greater. I witnessed to him, and truthfully, my disciples, you need to go be his disciples. That happened in John chapter 1. He's the one you need to follow. Not only do you need to follow him, but I must follow him too. See, the person who accepts and believes his testimony believes God. That what? That God is true. But a failure to believe Jesus and receive his testimony is to believe that God is a liar. All throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, God spoke through messengers. He raised people up. They were endowed with uh, a, a, a certain amount of the Spirit to accomplish the task. And I'm going to just pick on one, Samson. Samson was crazy. But he, in the, at the end of his life, he is given power by the Spirit to, to avenge he killed more people in his death than he did in his life. The Spirit just came on him for a certain task. The Spirit came on other men that God would use, other men and women that God would use for a particular task, but they were, had, had a limited um, uh, portion of the Spirit, but not so with Jesus. Jesus received the Spirit without measure. God just, all that you want, giving, him, giving it to him. The text says also in verse 35 that the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. This text, this chapter ends by pointing us again to God's wrath. We talked about it a little bit last week. The person, the text says, who believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, we don't like that. We don't like to talk about God's wrath, but this is what the text says. You need to notice it says the wrath of God remains. We're about to go to seminary school for a moment. This is the Greek present tense verb. What does it mean? This is continual and ongoing. It doesn't stop. It don't just, it's not just a one-off. It is continual. It is ongoing. It's in the present tense. This suggests that unbelievers stand right now under the wrath, the looming wrath of God that will be consummated 
when they are raised from the dead. Because even the, the wicked is going to be raised from the dead. The wrath of God is on them now. And it's going to be consummated in that day where they are raised and then condemned. Simply because they would not obey, which means they do not believe. For those of you who are in the medical field or who understand this, respirators are machines that do the breathing for you. Again, I, we, 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 my wife and I was just in, in our, back in our hometown and, and being in hospital rooms, you know that these respirators exist. There are people who are on these machines uh, that, that were respirators breathing for them because there was a problem. There was a problem with their breathing, so they were connected. Now, if a person on this breathing machine insists on breathing on their own, the respirator does them no good. It's just there. There's only one thing that a person can do with a respirator. That word is cooperate. Cooperate. Now, that person is involved because it's their lungs that are going up and down. It's their mouth and nose that's taken in the oxygen. The respirator and the person are working together, but the respirator is doing the work. It's the respirator. So a person on a respirator must cooperate with it rather than resist it. Friends, the Lord Jesus wants to express his life through us and be our respirator. He does not want us being our own respirator because then we don't need him. Again, I'm out of myself, but I often rig my life in a way that if God don't come through, then I'm good. Or at least I think I'm rigging my life that way. That if he does not come through, but it never works out that way. It never works out that way for me, which shows I always need him. This is how many people are living today, as if they don't need them. In other words, they're living in unbelief and disobedience. But for the believer, you and I must yield ourselves to the person of Christ. We must do this because we believe him. Again, you don't have to nod or answer this, but do you believe Jesus? Because if you believe Jesus, then you believe that God is true. We have too many people today hyperventilating because they want to do this life on their own instead of submitting to Jesus and allowing him to live his life through us. So I just ask you again, friends, do you believe? Is Jesus central? Is he your focus? Please don't take my word for it. You have a Bible. You have the capacity to study. Study this for yourself. And see what you come away with by praying to God that he will open your eyes to see Jesus even more glorious and more beautiful. And follow him every moment that he gives you. Father, thank you for allowing us to traverse and, and, and continue to walk through your word. And again, I pray that we would see Jesus. I pray that we would see how wonderful he is and that we would follow him, not follow our own way, but follow the way of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has been given for us. 
So, Lord, as we prepare now to come to the table, I pray that Jesus would continue to be our focus as we come to these elements, this cracker and juice, which represents his body broken and his bloodshed. Receive our worship, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>